Today's show is brought to you by our new sponsor, Cog Network. Cog Network, geared for gain. Cog Network is hedge fund investing evolved. By owning Cog Network tokens, you get exposure to the hedge fund's gains. The hedge fund is comprised of algorithmically traded commodity futures and investment in hard assets related to energy. The first hard asset is partial ownership of a multi-million dollar solar farm that has a crypto mining operation attached. I mean, this is really something that both traditional and crypto investors can come together and participate in. So for traditional investors, they can get exposure to cutting edge blockchain technology in a framework that they're familiar with, a hedge fund, right? And crypto investors can get exposure to an actual security that bears dividends and includes non-crypto assets. So that's super cool. And just for full disclosure, Cog Network is a fully registered and regulated entity qualified by the SEC as a Reg D as well as a Reg S and has a 506C exemption. They've been working with lawmakers since 2017 to get this idea built out in a fully compliant way. Crypt Nation, if you guys are interested in learning more about a tokenized hedge fund, go visit www.cog.network. All right, all you good citizens of Crypt Nation out there tuning in to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. Uh, wherever you guys are, I hope you're staying safe. Uh, there's several countries and states still locked down. Uh, I am not joined by my notorious uh, accomplice, Pizza Mind. He is he's out of commish. Uh, he's healthy, he's fine, but he's just out of commish today. Uh, but I am joined by an amazing guest who has uh, a very cool background, uh, both in the world of finance and economics and government uh, and cybersecurity and all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, really one of the smartest chaps that I think we've had the pleasure of, of bringing on the show. So Dan Doney of Securency, founder and CEO. Welcome to the show. Well, Bryce, it's really my pleasure to be here. And thanks for setting such a high bar. Uh, it all goes down from here. But uh, <laughs> no, I, re I really mean that when I when I say, you know, you, you come from, you know, a very academic background, uh, you know, a government background, a finance background. Tell us a little bit more about uh, about who you are. Yeah, well, I I love to code. Um, so there's that. So I had a chance to work maybe most government careers ever um, and that I touched some really neat areas inside of government. So I, I, I started in the military actually, um, went to the Naval Academy and MIT and then spent a number of years um, in the Navy working on, on submarines. Um, had a chance to teach at the Naval Academy, so that was pretty cool. Um, had a passion for artificial intelligence starting from uh, undergrad and then did a look in the 90s in that field. Got out of the military uh, after we had our first child and uh, then 9-11 happened. And so I uh, was recruited back to NSA and, and did work there in the AI field for almost a decade and had a chance to work with some of the brightest minds around the world, frankly, in AI. And you know, it was just a super exciting time in my life. Um, my, my specialty was in human machine systems and how you could take advantage of machine speed and human intuition to um, process data much faster um, and much more efficiently to, than, uh, than was previously possible. And some of that work is actually still cutting edge um, from that particular time. Our, uh, the, the mission of the activity that we were working in was called our ARDA, the Advanced Research and Development, which later became IARPA, and their time horizon was technologies that are 10 to 20 years out. So uh, that's about right, um, given the time frame when I worked there. Went on to the Department of Homeland Security. I'd, I'd always been an algorithm developer, so even before college, I was, uh, as, a, as a young kid, coding. Um, got the very first IBM PC. My uncle worked for IBM. So I had a chance to code at age 10 so and nice. uh, had a passion for it. Um, I did algorithm development mostly through, through my career. Talk, um, talk about which is that. a very different like, thing than what, what is algorithm development? Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a funny, a funny term, um, and a lot of people might not be familiar with what an algorithm is. But Bitcoin has lots of algorithms in it. So, so what kind of algorithms were you building? 
Yeah. So look, I my, I like to focus on um, at, at the time neural networks as uh, algorithm development and and really advancing how neural networks worked. Now this was before the time of learning neural nets, um, but but I worked there. Um, so it's really algorithm development as opposed to traditional software development is much more about high end mathematical problem solving as opposed to scale systems, if that makes sense, the distinction. So a lot of software development is about sustainability and interoperability. Algorithm development is just about solving really hard problems. Now, that switched gears for me after I left uh, the, the NSA field and went to work for the Department of Homeland Security. I went there as part of their enterprise service. And there is really where I had a chance to expand my skill sets working in settings and really for scale and interoperable systems. So it was a very, it was a big, huge learning experience for me as those kinds of systems, that kind of work is very different. Um, I had a chance to work in identity systems then. Um, and uh, so that was, you know, again, a big part of my uh, career learning developed at, at that point. And, and based on that work, um, and some of my earlier work in AI, I had an opportunity to become the intelligence community's first chief innovation officer, served in that role, defense intelligence agency, and just had a blast. Um, it, it is it's a cushy title, um, one that isn't well defined. It wasn't, especially when I got there. Um, with titles like that, it's awfully presumptuous. The, the big, biggest thing that I learned is I wasn't the chief innovator. I was there to unlock innovation, that is, unlock the ideas anywhere that they came from, um, inside the agency, outside the agency, and really harness them to make a mission impact. And so much of that work really started around how you make a big government agency in a very close, closely guarded um, community, how you help it take advantage of the best technologies that, that come, frankly, outside their walls. And um, that involves fighting a lot of resistance to change and um, putting in place structures. Actually, the whole secret came down to this. And if you can, as any enterprise, anywhere, if you can master this, and this isn't my quote, I wish it was, it's Joey Ito came up with this quote. It's that um, if you want to be innovative, lower the cost of failure. So, so much of even in the world, people do, you know, these huge, many year, development projects that become too big to fail. And so as a result, they're never able to do the quick turn, try this to identify emerging technologies, and frankly, to harness the great things that happen outside of your organization. So the other quote I've used was um, Bill Joy from Sun Microsystems had a quote, no matter, and I'm paraphrasing, no matter how many smart people you have inside your organization, there's always more smart people outside. So what really separates an innovative organization from one that's not is how efficiently you take smart ideas from outside of your organization. And <laughs> I so love that it. really a lot yeah, about the, my approach to this space. Now, it also happens to be the same time when I fell in love with blockchain. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, it sounds like it alludes to, um, it, it definitely alludes to a lot of things that blockchain is kind of bringing as, uh, to the government. And, and I definitely want to kind of think about really, you know, how did you kind of stumble into this whole world of blockchain? Yeah, look, so if you, if you track my career, you see that I, I just am passionate about cool things, cool problems, cool tech. And so have, have had a chance to go after a bunch of things, but you know, again, I tend well on the things that are game changing. And um, so as I first received Bitcoin. So I remember the experience. Um, and gosh, I wish I could remember his name. The guy who um, first taught me about what Bitcoin was all about and, and what the blockchain was was uh, about. He said, hey, just go download this wallet and I'll send you $10, which probably at the time was about one Bitcoin. And hell, uh, hell yeah. it was a world to be able to transmit. And it's like, wow, this is game changing. And then even more so, when I began to dig in on how that was possible. And, you know, it's just a spectacularly brilliant framework uh, for, the, for the transmission of value. 
Now there's some shortcomings. I, I did not like the concept of mining. I always found that that was, was there were better ways to execute the security models. And, and it, it really comes, I think the, that that has proven to be true as, as folks are moving to proof of stake over proof of work models. It was to me an abomination that we used as much power, electrical power as we did to secure these transactions and still do. But that's changing, you know, that the models are, are coming online. But just the, the sheer brilliance of the consensus as, as a way of securing a network took, you know, it wasn't hard to fall in love. Yeah, um, now, <laughs> especially with your background. A year, oh, yeah. So uh, a year after that first transaction, I was exposed to the bad side of blockchain. Um, it was a, a research project that was mapping human trafficking and uh, so a, a specific team who was you know, really looking for the nexus here. And again, as and any these kinds of tragedies are of interest to the community. These are the kinds of networks, that, the intelligence community, that, that the, the community cares very much to disrupt. And what you saw was this nexus between Bitcoin transactions and human trafficking that was, you know, the, the linkages were frighteningly strong. And so it became clear that this, this model unchecked um, really, and this, it wasn't Bitcoin. It is anytime you have anonymous transactions and it doesn't start with Bitcoin. It's same thing is true for cash transactions, frankly, um, or other transactions. Anytime you have anonymous transactions, while good people may do good things there, bad people just love it. And um, so it becomes a dangerous environment. And so what I saw was a great opportunity based on my earlier work. And, and frankly, the bat, I, don't, I don't think anyone would argue, or very few people would argue, that things like human trafficking and governments actually have to care about these things. And um, they do have to intervene. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm all for censorship free value. We need this. Same time, we need a community that polices itself in a, in a way that's much more intensive than, um, than many people in the community have, uh, have dedicated themselves to. And as a result, you get intervention and you have to as a society. So remember, societies themselves are consensus models. Right. So it's a question of where you have to, you know, where you cross these boundaries in terms of the way that you step in. And what I saw was a pathway that would actually get the best of the, both worlds. That through the power of the blockchain, you have the ability to have complete traceability of transactions. Okay, so, so that's great. You can anonymize those transactions using zero knowledge proofs and only make them available to those who have a need to know. And, and regulators, overseers have a need to know, but what you want to know, and this is what's so powerful about blockchain, is you can know when they know. So you can instrument their ability to view things in a way that's immutable so that they can't change it. And you can see, you can hold them accountable for seeing what they've seen. We've never had an ecosystem like that. So, so that, that you'll be basically notified. So like things will be uh, anonymous and privacy preserving by default. And then if the government has to look, there will be a log of their views of your data. Is that right? Exactly. And you can and have then privacy organizations oversee what the government can see. So, you know, again, when you have this immutability at the core, you have the ability to hold everyone accountable. And, um, and frankly, as you know, the existing financial system does not have this kind of oversight. Right. And there's there's all around as a result. Yep. So um, we have a better, there's a better system ahead. There's a better system for everyone. But people have to acknowledge that we can't have an ecosystem that uh, facilitates unchecked the worst kinds of human behavior. Absolutely agreed. And so the solution that you're kind of bringing forth or proposing, uh, building, I should say, it's far beyond a proposal. Uh, it's built. You guys are in production, uh, a platform called Securency, which I think takes the best of both worlds uh, of a platform like Ethereum or Tezos, uh, but kind of 
infusing in it, you know, the law, you know, regulations. I mean, actual, you know, taking the 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 law and hard coding it into how a asset that's issued on Securency uh, can move. So, so tell us about the thought process uh, behind your platform and uh, what really most excites you about it. Yeah. Oh, this is awesome. So I do want to correct a little bit about the record. It's not hard coding. Um, it, it is. Um, so even the law can change, and it's important to have mechanisms by which you update the regulations. But let's let's backtrack a bit. So uh, Bryce, I'm going to go a little deeper here, maybe than I've gone in other places. If you Please. if you permit me, um, I permit. <laughs> if, if you find it to be uh, so, we we came in to this. Um, you know, again, I, the the very while I was still working in government settings in the evening. You know, given the fact that I loved what was going on in the blockchain space, I started coding and and coded up a system um, in about two months that allowed us to tokenize and I would um, assets and I was always interested in asset backed models from from the get-go and this was 2015 so it was definitely uh, I think ahead of its time but what we saw and the name security actually comes from the the fact that w- what I was interested in was commercial risks so how could you take and tokenize securitize a pool of commercial real estate leases to produce dividend paying currency. And um, so uh, that, that concept that someone could invest in, again, real estate leases or insurance pools or other things was what we were after in 2015. And the model was one where you had a security and uh, it, we couldn't argue that these were securities or these were the kinds of things that you would invest in. And it was an investment interest. But it had the benefits of a currency and that it was easily transmittable, tradable, et cetera. And that's where the name Securency came from um, in, in that initial model. I used Ripple, actually, for the, the, that first platform. But I also fell in love with Ethereum. And so it was kind of like, well, um, I probably want to do this in such a way that we can ledgers. And if I were to bet on anything in the long run, the, the, the bet that I thought was safest is that whoever the best is, it won't always be the best. And we needed to build in such a way that it was ledger agnostic. So um, we invested a lot in that part of our, our solution. And it's, I think, paying dividends because what you see is a tremendous amount of innovation across the distributed ledger space. We're excited about Ethereum 2.0 as, as uh, that hits the street and be some game-changing capabilities there. We happen to love Stellar, actually, as a ledger. They, they're making great progress in certain countries that are super useful. Tezos is a, is a good ledger. There's a, get, they're gaining a lot of momentum there. Uh, we love Hedera Hashgraph. Transaction speeds of over 100,000 transactions per second are, are possible there. And so the, the bottom line in terms of as we go forward on all of this is the only way you can you can strike the balance in the crypto world, you have security, performance, um, and gosh, I'm forgetting what the other leg of the, the the triple you get to emphasize one of those three. Speed. Well, or sp- speed. Security performance. Yeah, that, I think that's performance. Oh, it is. Dang it! I, I'm feeling like an amateur here. But in in any case, what what we know is different applications, different use cases involve different dimensions there. So there isn't going to be one solution. There will never be one ledger that solves everybody's problems. And so what you want is a framework that allows you to use the right ledger for the right problem. But what's more, actually the ability to then move across ledgers. And uh, so just imagine switching gears, you've got shares of your company, you've chosen a particular ledger, and 10 years later, it's kind of out of favor. It's like choosing um, access database to, to, to run your system on. And now, 20 years later, you're still stuck there because that was your choice. What you want is the ability to migrate across and even in real time where it's even up to the users where they go. And so we built a ledger interoperability framework um, that was really useful. But what we found was it's not just for distributed ledgers, it's for any ledger. Mm-hmm. And so this made it very easy for us to integrate with banking systems, um, with uh, off-chain or centralized trading systems, with legacy systems altogether. And that's where all the institutional value is. 
So that framework and up to and including internal accounting systems, all of this can become part of effectively a distributed ledger of ledgers. And so we're excited about the implications there. It's allowed us to be very responsive to some of our institutional customers and their needs um, because we have a tool that is designed with a click-in infrastructure. By the way, we do intend, we're going to open source. We've open sourced the Compliance Token Framework. We're going to open source what we call our finance ontology. So we've broken down financial transactions into a base ontology. Wow. What you find is that base ontology, it's actually not that complex. Um, there's a handful of baseline transactions that you see used in a variety of different forms that are then composed together. Think of them as like atoms that get composed into molecules, which then lead to compounds. So payments are one of those transactions, but a, a payment almost never occurs in a vacuum. Right. It's usually part of a purchase. So I send you some cash, value, crypto, whatever, in exchange for something. And um, so that basic purchase mechanism then is part of a composite transaction. Um, other things, exchanges, escrow, the concept of collateral, um, the concept of loans and, and uh, of assets. Those are basic core concepts. And then there's a series of verbs that, that affect the way that those concepts interact. And so we, we built then, when you build that abstraction layer, that ontology, it allows you to overlay a ledger, whether it's PayPal or Alipay um, or Ethereum or Bitcoin with this basic model. And then systems can interoperate, even if those systems were not designed to interoperate with each other. Through this ontology, you can interact across those ecosystems. And so that's a piece we intend to open source. And the reason is we want folks to be able to build into that ontology. If you connect into, it's a hub spoke model. So if you connect into a hub, right. which is an open source finance ontology, you're suddenly connected to every other spoke, every other distributed ledger who someone has bothered to build a connector to or every banking system or payment risk. And so that piece is, is a part of our, our future. We're, hardening those pieces for, for open sourcing um, in, in our structure going forward. Now, with that, we built a model, a general purpose permissioning model. And we call this, we used to call it our rules engine. We're calling it our policy engine. And that policy engine allows me to take any policy, any set of rules inside of my enterprise. I only want people who are this level in the organization to be able to, without uh, approval from their boss, spend $1,000, but with their boss, they can spend 100 whatever. It's a policy. U.S. Um, securities regulations are policies. Australian securities regulations are policies. British regulations are policies. Banking regulations are policies. Each one of these can be codified um, into effectively machine. So we have a nifty policy editor and we're going to publish some, some video and content and, and some training guides on how folks can use this, but you can take and map those regulations and call them recipes. The recipes can be combined together and what they are, how they work is there is a decentralized policy enforcement point on each ledger. When you attempt a transaction, it consults with the policy, interprets the policy and determines whether or not that policy is legitimate based on the regulations or other um, enterprise guidelines that you might have associated with your data. So it is a special purpose language for authorization decisions, for permissioning frameworks. That's very flexible, open-ended. You can connect it into your existing data. So let's just say you're World Bank and you want to, um, you have contractors that you've mapped in your SAP data system and you want to overlay over top of that some rules on how they can spend money, et cetera. You can connect using an Oracle to those data sources to enforce that policy in decentralized transactions. So very flexible framework. It comes down to this. You generate those policies. They're published to the various chains that have enforcement policy enforcement frameworks. Policies can be updated, et cetera. And this allows you to then govern without an intermediary complex regulations and rules to ensure that transactions that take place um, are, are legitimate. So you can assign to your token, um, to your assets, to your wallets, to other things, attributes. And then based on those, you can make decisions on whether or not a transaction can occur.
eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform every year. And they're some of our good friends and they're a great sponsor. US customers can trade the most popular crypto assets and your fees are extremely transparent. So if you're not ready to trade yet, uh, you could also practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. They give you $100,000 of virtual money and you could start playing around with it and not have to risk any of your real money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. before you get comfortable with the markets. And best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world, kind of like a social network for trading, to discuss charts and all things crypto. So go ahead, create an account today at eToro.com slash crypto 101. That helps us, that helps you, that helps them, and makes everything possible here if you guys use that link. So guys, start building your portfolio the smart way. eToro is crypto trading made easy. All right, back to the show. I think the term interoperability and this whole idea, I mean, it's at the very core of what you guys are doing, you know, connecting all these disparate ledgers. It's at the very core of, you know, what Cosmos Network is doing, Polkadot. Um, a lot of companies are focusing on it. And what, what I think is so interesting about what you guys are doing is that, you know, I always dichotomize or, or you know, break into two the world of crypto as like the Bitcoin, Monero, whatever, trying to be these stores of wealth um, against regulation, kind of, you know, Swiss bank account in your pocket, as they say. Um, maybe Ethereum could even fall into that uh, that camp. And then you, on the other side of the, the, the table, you have, you know, securities of the world or Securitize or Vertalo, people that are trying to play with regulation built in. So long, long-winded question, but do you think that these two worlds um, can coexist? Do you think that there's a need for both sides of the of that equation? How do you see that unfolding? Yeah, there's, look, um, so typically when you get a dichotomy like that, it's because both sides are right. And um, so there's, there's value on both sides. What we're trying to do, in the same way that I, I mentioned to you, holding the, the regulator accountable or the overseer accountable in this, we're trying to create consensus frameworks by which people define what is possible to, to what's allowed. What, what. So what we know as a society is we trust matters and that we, that rules will, it, rules must exist. And so we don't, we don't have a dog in the fight, whether one particular regulation is good or not um, on this. What we know is that there are regulations and there are rules and there are reasons for enforcing rules. So we produce a general purpose framework by which people can, can uh, create and manage ecosystems. What to do is put pressure on, on governments who are <clears throat> um, who have arbitrary rules that don't serve societal societal purposes or are designed to really protect incumbents. They start to fall behind in a model when you can automate compliance and trend become efficient and capital can be allocated efficiently. Any society who's holding things up for whatever the reason, for power, for incumbent, for whatever, will fall behind. So we believe that that puts pressure on folks to on 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 governments to streamline, to make sure that they are properly protecting their citizens, um, uh, ensuring honest and fair commerce, etc., but not protecting the legacy players who are in a marketplace. And if you do that, you'll lose. 
So that's the, the framework that, that we look at here um, in, in terms of unifying these, these worlds and the way I would describe it is as possible. But trust matters. And so the frameworks by which you get, you produce a coalition. Uh, here's, here's an example um, of a real problem right now for the community that straddles the two. There is, due to laundering, the financial action task force, there's a global regulation for banking transactions, has pretty much laid down last, last June saying, hey, look, changes. Exchanges generally, what they call VASPs, virtual assets service providers. You shall conform to the travel rule. Um, we'll give you one year. Now it's likely that it'll be extended from this June. I don't, you know, I'm not, I, I don't know, but I think um, given that folks haven't quite made it there, but are putting in a legitimate effort to get to this point, people know that they must support the travel rule. So if I buy crypto on Binance and I send it to Poloniex, they have to exchange information about me as part of that transaction. The source and the destination accounts and, and parties involved in every transaction must be provided. Well, the question is, who, who, gets, who gets that info? What entities, what does it take for you to be an entity that says Dan Doney and his account? What, what, what qualifications do you have to have? Because it'd be easy to say, to create a bunch of wallets and put artificial names associated with them, throw them into the mix and say, I'm keeping track of these wallets. But if they're not real people, you get a race to the bottom problem. So in fact, you need the community to protect, to police its own. Well, guess what? This isn't much different than the SEC had regulations at, for protecting broker-dealers. Given that a broker-dealer has particular responsibilities in terms of the way that they interact with potential investors, um, they wanted to make sure that you know, this isn't a race to the bottom on this. The SEC knows they can't tap every party who should be allowed to do this. So what emerged was FINRA, which is really a group of broker-dealers who decide using a coalition model, who can be allowed into that, you know, what standards are required in order to hold that title? Well, the same thing, what standards are required to be a VASP in this framework? That we've built a very general purpose model to do this, where coalitions can come together and attest to things. Attestations are statements of um, assertions, statements of truth as as identified by a particular party under a particular authority. Well, it turns out that's really important to do when you're dealing with, like, for example, a, a global pandemic where you need to know what doctors are actually certified in order to act in a place. How do you know that they're certified because they said so? There aren't good models to do exactly this model, this thing that we're discussing here. We've come up with a framework for that. And, and so it's, we're not trying to say that there's one party, the United States should tell everybody that the world should behave. That's, that would be tragic. What you want is coalitions of parties who have the freedom to come together um, in the interest of societies and begin to set boundaries. And if they don't do it well, if they're too restrictive or not restrictive enough, they'll go by the wayside or they'll get pressure um, from society to fix what they do. And, um, and so you get governance. And this becomes the intersection between blockchain-based governance and societal governance. So we're excited to push those models. We've got some really innovative um, frameworks there um, that, we're, that we're looking to roll out. But this has a lot to do with the way then that you do permissioning on-chain for every transaction. Fascinating. Um, so uh, you, you, obviously, you know, we've been listening to you speak. Uh, you were, you know, we've learned that you've been part of the government before and you, you've got such great insight. So this is a question I haven't asked anybody uh, who's been on the show in the recent months because nobody really uh, has worked for the government. But from your viewpoint, what has the government done right and what has have they done wrong, you know, in your opinion, in their handling of this current situation that we uh, have unfolding with coronavirus and such? Oh my gosh, that's a loaded question. And, and one where, so I'll tell you what the government generally does right from my experience and what the government generally does wrong, but oh. I'm not enough of an expert in this particular 
field to um, say what they've got right and what they've got wrong. Well, you know, look, I can say this, that it is very important for governments to protect the individual liberties of its citizens. And um, so this, this is a thing that governments have to check themselves because it's easy to step over lines. And once you step over lines, um, it's the kind of thing that you know, it's hard to regain that, that territory in terms of civil liberties, particularly careful in um, how easily I just see across, you know, across the world, how happily people are just handing over their civil liberties here. I get that it's a crisis. And in the, in times of crisis, you must, um, societies need to react and act as a coalition to solve problems, which sometimes means delegating your rights um, to the, to the community. But man, we got to check this. Now, just generally, what does a government do? Well, governments are incredibly inefficient, incredibly inefficient. I'll tell you this. This was the big frustration point for me in, in my role as a chief innovation officer. You know, they have a lot of resources, so that allows them to tackle some long-run problems. But um, it, it's not, there's no me- direct measure of mission impact. So, um that holds people accountable. When you run a, a company, whether or not you produce, like in our case, revenue matters. You got to produce revenue. And so we don't do things that um, we do make long bets. So we push after things that we think will produce large revenue over time, but we're held to that standard by our investors. And, you know, internally, we know it's important for growth in government. You don't have that. And so the, the lack of that motivation results in just a tremendous amount of waste. And it is very easy to spend taxpayers' dollars. Um, That's not hard. There's lots of people who come to you. It's spending them efficiently. That's tricky. And there's no checks. So that's, that's, uh, or there's very little checks. Um, Yeah, it's funny. I like what you said about, you know, it's easy to spend taxpayers' money. Um, And then on the flip side of that, or I mean, the same side of that coin, really, is that it's easy to, uh, as the Fed or central bank, you know, dilute every dollar holder's equity in the nation by printing more dollars. Um, but do you think, you know, do you think this is a necessary evil that we're already married to? Uh, this, you know, Keynesian economics, this money printer, uh, that whole that whole idea. No, my God, I'm in Austrian school, so no, um, I'm not a fan. Now. Again, I'm, I'm not close to the situation to know how big the cracks are. Um, what I've seen from my vantage point is there are some big cracks in our existing financial system. Um, we've seen some things that are scary. Um, what? And What's, what over things are the scary? Past, uh, the, flash crash, uh, the flash crash in overnight rates. So bank liquidity is based on that the, the overnight rates. And last September, I think it was the 16th and 17th, there was a huge spike in overnight rates, um, interest rates. Yeah, like up to 10% or something. It was a reflection something. of, again, we, yeah, yeah. It's just, that's, I don't think that's ever happened in our history. And we've, we've that's the one good piece. Uh, I shouldn't speak so directly, but the, the, the Federal Reserve printing money, I'm, just, I'm, not, a, I'm not a fan. But um, the, the one good piece is the way that banks, the overnight rates and the way they lend to one another, because before that mechanism, you had liquidity crisis in the banking system before the 1930s, liquidity crisis in banking system all the time. And um, the fact that banks have a mechanism by which they can help each other cover those shortcomings in their balance sheet, um, result solved the liquidity issue. It's like a little pressure valve. 80 plus years. Yeah, that's right. And suddenly we just hit the limit and that's scary. So these are the kinds of things. I don't know how big those cracks are and maybe they're bigger than I realize where the feds got to do some things about this. In any case, if they start getting into that camp, this is the time for our industry. That is the folks in the blockchain space to be prepared for what comes next, because there will be, I'm not Nostradamus. I can't make, you know, any kind of, it will come in our lifetime where if, if the kinds of transparency and clarity um, that blockchain provides 
is not a fundamental part of the financial system, then we're going to have a major financial catastrophe. We got close in 2008. I had a feeling we were getting close now uh, to that limit. I think I, hey, we're a great country. I think we're going to come through all this and we'll be just fine. But sometime before you know, I hit hopefully uh, my grave at a, at a ripe old 80 plus, we're going to have something. And so what we need to do is establish the foundation right now of a financial system that's fair and accessible and transparent. And so now's our time to do this. But look, um, the flip side of this is folks in the blockchain space have not policed their own. The ICO craze was a freaking nightmare. That, that was complete lack of discipline in, in our space. And that's not a good sign that we are the responsible stewards of uh, the financial system. I'll tell you, DeFi, I love DeFi. DeFi is the future. It's, we, are, we are focusing our attention on DeFi challenges. You can go into that um, some more because we think it is so very important to have convenient, easy to use, transparent, for example, lending, among other things. Um, so it's huge. But you see rehypothecation of assets in, the, uh, in DeFi where there's no transparency. There's no limit to the amount of lending against reserve. So there's not that overnight night rate or balance sheet. And we saw how, what happened here you know, a few weeks back as they hit the limits with, with the price of Ethereum. It caused a shutdown. If people are not, if they're trying to make a buck and it's sacrificing to do that, when I, when I buy, you know, when I'm getting 8% interest on my USDC, because my, that, that has been loaned out, you know, 30 times since then, so that if I ever have to pull it all out, a fraction of it actually exists. That's not better than the banking system, folks. So I have to know what I own. There has to be complete transparency about what I own. And we're not there yet. It's a piece that we're driving to in terms of our path going forward as a, as a, uh, as security, because we believe that that what happened in 2008 with the lack of transparency in the mortgage-backed security space has already happened at small scale in the crypto space. And it'll happen more if we don't emphasize transparency as a part of what we do. And um, we have the right tool for it. Blockchain is the perfect tool for this. Um, but it's, it's not been a part of the ethos of our community. And man, we got to get on this because now's our time. We can be the core of finance if we do this right. Love it. Love it. Very, very insightful. Um, and a couple other questions that we like to ask every guest uh, who comes on the show in closing. Um, tell me about one other project that you're not working on um, that really interests you. Maybe another company that you think is having a tremendous impact, um, but has nothing to do with your company. Yeah. Let me give you two. Perfect. Uh, oh, gosh, there's a bunch of good ones. Um, uh, we have uh, a close friend, Open Crowd, doing some cool, really great stuff um, there, working with Hedera's Hashgraph that we think is is awesome. They've got a, a nifty payment model. Um, those guys are are doing some great work. We're keen. Um, I, I mentioned this in other settings for a similar question on what Amazon and Microsoft are doing in the blockchain space. So that they've got some really powerful things in in their deep down in the bowels of those organizations that are going to um, uh, make an impact. Uh, they're the right players in terms of infrastructure offerings to give a, a reliable baseline on which you, you design a bunch of financial instruments. So we think that's pretty cool. Um, look, we, we like the, the guys you mentioned, Vertalo, that's a group there. I like Dave and his style. Um, the folks at Invenium, um, the, what they're doing with data to make it so that when you own an asset, um, it, the, the, I think the tagline they use is Carfax for mortgages. So you can see exactly what the performance of the underlying asset is um, based on their data structure. We intend to incorporate that in our ETF structures, among other things. So a bunch of great projects out there. And I haven't even, haven't even touched DeFi. DeFi is the bomb. 
<laughs> well, well, let's touch on it. Let's touch on it. What what makes DeFi decentralized finance the bomb? The last question. Yeah, yeah. You have the ability. Is something uh, where we are directly rolling out. So what what we're focused on is uh, asset management. So having funds that manage themselves. So you you have to have a curator that is the person who's producing the index, but all aspects of the back office components of a fund, you should be able to click a button, get a fund, fund shell, be able to add assets to that fund of any type, um, whether it's equities, debt, leases, individual uh, assets, pieces of art, real estate, whatever into that fund structure and manage it and, and trade it and have full transparency to those underlying assets. That, so that's where our focus is. Um, we want to work with DeFi players to take this, this fund shell and fill it up with good stuff um, from the DeFi space like loans, because we can do what the RMBS residential mortgage backed securities and CMBS commercial mortgage backed securities failed to do in 2008. We now have the tools to do um, it at great scale. But in that, we see self-processing just as an example. So what we're going to fill up our funds with self-processing loans. What does that mean? I can make an Ethereum NFT and that, that is a loan. And it, it turns out the parameters associated with how a loan behaves, there's only a, a dozen or so um, core parameters of the loan, interest rate, payment frequency, blah, blah, blah. I can, I can codify that in the Ethereum smart contract straight up. I can make it so that a person can pay their loan directly to the asset, to the NFT. And so they take their US dollar tokens, they, they um, scan the QR code of the loan, they make the payment. The loan processes itself and pays its owner. That owner might be a fund or it could be an individual who's bought the loan, et cetera. This is, an, and the owner of that asset as it trades has absolute and complete transparency as to the performance of that loan. So unlike the big short, right? The 2008 crisis where you had these massive mortgage-backed securities portfolios full of underperforming loans and no one knew outside of you know a, a very small group of people who were snowing everybody. They didn't have transparency. We can do that. And what's more, we can completely drive down the cost of those financial so I this is going to change everything about the way that banking is done about the way financial instruments are issued through through these basic structures and then and I expect that there are others in the space it's completely open-ended define your own asset allow it to process itself according to the following specifications from our finance ontology and it plugs into a framework by which it can be exchange traded globally frankly based on our policy engine. And, and so we're, we're talking about bus and stuff wide open here. And I know I'm, I'm just a little bit excited about the future. Yeah. And it starts no, with I the same tell. financial that, that are out there and codifying them as smart contracts so that they're transparent, that they process themselves independent of specific backend systems that are, you know, where the logic is all codified in some database somewhere or some middleware somewhere. These are, it's actually codified into the asset itself, fully verifiable, fully scalable. And that's a big change from the way finance used to be done. That's a big change uh, and big change is needed. Uh, I, I think we're, we're definitely starting to see the desire for a nation to, to change with, with all that's going on right now. Um, and that change is unstoppable. Um, and I kind of wanted to just in closing revisit that last or one of those quotes that you gave. Um, you know, it, it was something like, you know, I think it was by Bill Joy of Sun Systems that no matter how many smart people are in your organization, uh, there are more smart people outside. And I think that the government is realizing um, <laughs> that, you know, no matter how many smart people are in government, innovation always comes from the outside. Um, and, and answers and solutions generally are are abundant on the outside. And I think that the, the government's going to take a lot of note uh, from systems like security and Bitcoin and these decentralized, uh, innovative, uh, innovative systems. Um, and, I, and I hope that they incorporate it for, for our, all, our own good. I mean, you know, they are uh, our delegates. We, you know, we are the voters and we are the uh, people that the government needs to represent. Uh, and they are just doing our bidding. So if, if you look at it like that, you know, just let's hope 
that the government does eventually uh, take note from the smart guys like Dan um, <laughs> in order to build build better systems. I think that's really the the, the moral of the story here. Um, but Dan, thank you so much for coming yeah, I do, on, I man. Sure, on that. Yeah, thank, that, that look, we've we've interacted a lot um, with with regulators and other folks in government on these technologies. Very very sharp people there. So oftentimes people say, ah, get it. remember folks who claim to get it in our world blew it in the opportunities that they were given. And the government was wise in, you know, digging deeper on this and, uh, and, and taking their time because they adopted the standards that were um, in place in 2017 or 2016 or allowed that to happen or embraced it. We'd be in a bad spot um, right now in terms of people snookering other folks. There are brilliant folks in government who are taking this problem um, seriously. And now th th that the financial sector, you could say the same thing about the financial sector in terms of, you know, no matter how many smart people inside, there's more smart people outside. They're being disrupted because they're not moving fast enough uh, by what's going on. You know, the pace of change in the fintech world, not just in the blockchain world, is finally shaking their foundations mm -hmm. on that. And, and so it is. Uh, uh, it takes a lot to work in the financial service space for good reason. Um, there, there are high standards there, but it doesn't mean you resist change. Um, that, that never ends well. So let's change this place. Heck yeah. Beautiful. Well, well Dan, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, and we'll keep in touch. And, and just real quick, um, what's the website here for Securency? We'll, we'll throw it in the show notes. Yep, uh, www.securency.com. Securency is S-E-C-U-R-R-E-N-C-Y. So think S-E-Currency.com. Beautiful. All right, everybody, we'll catch you next week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.